0: to the Word of God. John chapter 15. John chapter 15, we see the seventh I am statement around which John themes the writing by the inspiration of God, this gospel, the gospel of John. Seven I am statements, uh, seven witnesses uh, that John will uh, write about, and seven signs. And all of those sevens are around which John will write, again, by the inspiration of God, God breathed these words for us and preserved them for us. And we see here in John 15, this seventh I am statement. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. The imagery of a vine, of a vineyard, would have been very common in that day. Now, we don't have it quite as common today, at least not in these parts. I know there are some vineyards scattered around different places. It seems like because of the popularity of wineries, I've seen more and more vineyards popping up, and it seems that now, like for instance down in Westfield, uh, where uh, Chandler will sometimes have baseball games or uh, Eric will have a basketball game down there at Grand Park, I've noticed that with the building of a new neighborhood I mean, a really nice neighborhood, before even all the roads are finished, before all the landscaping is finished, they already have a winery, and it's already open for business. And uh, I, I, think that's, I think that's sad. But anyway, we are, we are seeing more and more of these wineries pop up, and so the vineyards that are associated with them. Um, I'm from California. Don't throw tomatoes at me. I know it's the land of the fruits and nuts. But there are some good people out there. There are some good people out there. And uh, there are some people who love the Lord. And I've been to uh, Hamilton Square Baptist Church there in downtown San Francisco. And uh, Dr. Ennis is one of my heroes in the faith. And uh, I've been taught by that man through the years. And he is a faithful servant of God there in a very, very wicked place. But we went to San Francisco back in 2013 and 2015, made a couple of different trips out there. And we had the privilege of driving uh, out of the city, and if you've ever been around the Napa Valley or in, in that area of California, the vineyards are just everywhere. And, uh, and, and and I'm a teetotaler. I believe in total abstinence from alcohol, and uh, that's the, the position of our church. Um, but I'll have to admit that those vineyards and the olive orchards, are they're very pretty. They're, they're very pretty. I don't agree with some of the use of those you know, grapes and, and the olives and, and that sort of thing. I, I don't agree with uh, all of the, the way in which those are used and sold. But those vineyards are, are, are very beautiful. And there's mile after mile after mile of them. That would not have been too uncommon in the first century, in, in Bible times. Uh, they would have been very accustomed to the vineyards and to the, to the grapes. As a matter of fact, grapes, vines, vineyards are illustrated in the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, we could go back into Psalm 80, and we could see that Israel was even referred to as a vine out of Egypt. There were even vines, grape vines, on the outer gates of the temple. Okay, I understand that that grapes, and we, we we're not here. I'm not here to get into all the 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 dealings with alcohol and. and the beverage juice of alcohol and all that. My, my point is that that grapes were very common, and the grape juice, the uh, the wine, or whatever we want to call it, we have to understand that oftentimes that those grapes they were a symbol of the joy of the Lord. I understand that we've lost a lot of that, and, and most of us probably don't even eat grapes. <laughs> maybe we get them once in a while when they're in season, and maybe you enjoy them, um, but. Grapes, we, we, we often think of the wine and the beer and all that today, and there's a lot of negative connotations, and rightly so, and, and I've, already, I've already stated my position and our position as a church, but the point is that the vines, the grapes, were symbols of the joy of the Lord, not of drunkenness, not of inebriation, not of sin and vice. I mean, that's, that's the associations, that is the primary purpose of alcohol today, is for inebriation, for all of the vice that goes along with it and all of the, 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 the wickedness that is associated in the crime and, and on and on we could go. The point is that the vines, the vineyards, the grapes were illustrations or symbols of joy and God desired for Israel to be his greatest joy. But they sinned. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected his son, Jesus Christ. And they are are, are missing out on the joy of that great salvation. Now, there are Jews that are believers today. There is a remnant. Uh, We had one uh, here last fall by the name of Craig Hartman, who has a zeal and a passion for his people. He's a a Jew who is saved and he loves his people and he has a ministry, Shalom Ministries, to his people. But there is a loss of the joy of the Lord because of the rejection of the Messiah, the rejection of God's Son. We could go to Isaiah, we could go to Jeremiah, we could go to Ezekiel and Hosea, all of whom use the symbol of a vine as a symbol of Israel. But that's not the point that Jesus is making here. Yes, Jesus, as he often does, he uses illustrations from the, the common knowledge, the associations, what people in that day uh, were dealing with, what would have been very normal to them. And Jesus is using the symbol of the vine to speak to his bringing true, everlasting joy and peace to all who abide in him, who are vitally attached to him. He is the true vine, and the Father is the husbandman. He's the owner. He's the landlord. So Jesus is not speaking of Israel. He's not using some sort of allegory to reference Israel. He is simply stating that he is the source of life, he is the source of our true joy, the source of our true peace. Jesus had used the illustration of a vineyard in Matthew 20 in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. But in this case, Jesus is divine, God the Father is the husbandman. The theme throughout this chapter, as we take time to go through this chapter over the next probably several Sundays, we'll see that the theme clearly in this chapter is that of fruitfulness, fruitfulness. Now, some Bible scholars disagree on the interpretation of this passage. I have uh, studied this passage thoroughly, and I've referenced several different commentaries, and I'm not saying that I am uh, the authority on God's word, God's the authority his word is the authority and we are to be submissive and through proper principles of interpretation we are to discover and I'm to show by the lord's help with the lord's help what god is teaching what is the the meaning of this passage and good men can disagree but i did read and as i've studied and i've gone through this passage before and preached and taught through this passage before i believe that the branches are believers except for the dead branches, the branches that are taken away and cast into the fire. I believe those are branches, those dead branches, those branches cast into the fire. I believe those are speaking of the unsaved, those who are not truly abiding in Christ. So that is the interpretation that I am going to come from as we look at John chapter 15. And I want us to see, first of all, this morning, that fruitfulness fruitfulness is the inevitable result of abiding in Christ. We have to understand this word abide, it means to remain. To remain. And those who abide in Christ, a branch that is vitally attached in receiving life from the stalk of the vine that is a true believer who is receiving life from the sun. that branch will bear fruits if it doesn't bear fruit it is revealing that it is not truly a living branch truly abiding in the vine therefore it is, not, it, is, it is symbolic. It is referencing an unsaved person because a true believer will bear some measure of fruits. Now, again, I don't want to get controversial, and my point isn't to stir up uh, a lot of uh, debates, but I, I think that we have to understand as we look at the whole of Scripture and interpret Scripture by Scripture we can see that even in the parable of the sowers, that there was only one type of ground that bore fruits. The hard ground didn't bear fruit. The stony ground didn't bear fruit. The thorny ground didn't bear fruit. It was the good ground. That is the true believer who bears some measure of fruit. Some it might be 20-fold, some it might be 40-fold, some it might be 60-fold, some it might be 100-fold. But just like a baby that is born, a baby that is alive bears signs of life. A child that is stillborn does not show signs of life, a miscarriage that's baby does not have any signs of life. But what is one of the first things that happens when the child is born? I remember with all four of my children, I had the privilege of being in the the delivery room with all four of my children. And the scariest one, not only because I was a brand new father who had no clue what he was doing, had no idea how I was ever going to be prepared to take care of this child, but not only because of that, but also because Kelly's labor was so intense that when Emily was born, our first, we were, I mean, it was just overwhelming in so many ways, but especially when Emily was born and the NIC unit came charging in and they took Emily and they took this tube and they shoved it down her throat. And, of course, me, as a brand-new father, I'm like, what are you doing to my child? (laughs) And they shoved this tube down her throat, and they pulled that back out, and they sucked out the meconium. She had swallowed the meconium. She didn't come out breathing properly. The NIC unit was there to make sure, and they cleared her airway, and she cried (laughs) for I don't know how many hours or days. She had this raspy cough and cry because they had to shove that tube down her throat and pull that meconium out, suck that meconium out, so that she could breathe properly. They wanted to make sure that she had signs of life and that all of the living, all the signs of life were functioning properly. So a believer, true believer, who has repented of his or her sin and placed their faith in Christ, in Christ alone for their salvation, his finished work on the cross and his resurrection saved by faith and faith alone in Christ alone. That person truly born again is vitally attached, is abiding in Christ is receiving life from Christ. And therefore that branch will not be taken away, but the branch that is not receiving life from the vine is indicative of an unsaved person who does not have signs of life, who is not bearing any fruits. How many times have we seen a branch, a big limb? There was one across the street from our house last fall there at uh, the intersection of, of Salem and Union where we live. Huge branch one day, looked outside and it had fallen and part of the limbs had come out on the Union Street uh, there at Salem and Union and they had already brought, the city had already brought up. If it had been Indianapolis, it would have taken I don't know how many weeks. I was impressed. The city of Lafayette, I mean, they had somebody on it. They had that uh, limb at least cut or moved off of the street. I mean, if it had, again, if it had been Indianapolis, I love Indianapolis, I was raised there but they were slow, especially as I got older and lived there longer. And as the city got bigger, it took forever for things to happen. For a pothole to get filled in Indianapolis, you might have to call the mayor's hotline and it still wouldn't get done. But they had that tree pushed off to the side. They had it somewhat chopped up the very next day or within 48 hours. It was gone. But you looked up at that limb, this huge branch that just a couple of days before you would have thought was healthy, was vibrant. You looked and it was rotten to the core on the inside. It had been rotten right there at the trunk of the tree, and it lost its ability to, I know in this case, this limb had at one time had life, or it wouldn't have grown, but it had been rotten, been eaten up with some sort of disease or bug, and it had fallen. And we see here in this passage, in verse 2, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh, Away, And we go down to verse number six. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. First Corinthians three will make reference to our works as believers being burned up with the fiery judgment of God. The wood, hay and stubble. But in this passage, what gets burned is the person, the branch. Hell is a real place. I know that this is not popular. I know that this does not put seats in the pews. Hell is talked about as a... Place only for the really, 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 really bad people. Hell is even explained away. There was a popular preacher, uh, not that many years ago, who wrote a book, and he, in his book, he declared that hell did not exist. All kinds of attempts to try to remove hell from the Bible, but hell is a real place. The rich man lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torment. We read in Luke 16. Revelation 20 speaks of the great white throne judgment, and those who were not found written the name, whose name was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is real. The branch that does not bear fruits is not truly abiding, remaining in Christ. If we're not careful, if we don't interpret this passage, if we don't interpret, interpret this passage correctly, there are some who will say that a person can lose their salvation. They are taken away, they quit bearing fruit, so therefore they are taken away and they lose their salvation. That is not at all what this passage is saying. Scripture is very clear. From John chapter number 10, no man can pluck us out of the Father's hand. 1 Peter 1 and verse number 5, where we are told that, we are, that when we are saved, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Philippians 1 and verse 6, he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it. Until the day of Jesus Christ, we could go to Jude and verse 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. So this passage is not teaching some sort of insecurity of the believer. This passage is teaching that those who bear fruit give evidence Of truly being born again, just as a child is born and gives evidence of life. And those who are taken away, the branches that are taken away, they are the ones that did not bear any fruits. They were evident that the evidence is that they are not truly born again. They don't truly abide in Christ. In the, in the parable of the wheat and the tares. There's a judgment day. The tares look a lot like the wheat. But eventually the judgment comes. Not that long ago, Jesus had given a word to the disciples that one of them was not clean. One of them was not truly saved. He looked like them. He acted a lot like them. The disciples began to look around and ask as Jesus said, whoever is going to partake in, in, in the, 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 the sop and in, in taking there of the, uh, the, the bread at the Lord's table, he said, who puts his hand in the, the sop with me is that traitor, is that betrayer? And the disciples were asking, is it I, is it I? Looking around, not even suspecting that it was Judas. Judas was a branch that did not bear real fruit. We have places, maybe even around your house, you have decorations. You have, I know one day it was popular to have those plastic trees, those FICA trees, and they were very popular at one time, and decorations around different offices. Maybe you have one at your house. Maybe you have decorations that look very realistic. Have you ever made the mistake of watering a plastic plant You ever gone into an office, you ever gone into an office and you wondered about the plants and you look for the dust on the leaves to see, or you begin to feel it to see if it's real? And there are some plastic Christians out there who don't have real spiritual life. They're not truly abiding, remaining in Christ. They're tares among the wheat. It's one of the saddest things when someone sits in church, goes to a Christian school, is raised in a Christian home, hears the gospel regularly, and yet they never truly receive Christ as their Savior. They hang out with all the living branches. They can even talk the Jesus talk. They learn the lingo in a lot of ways, we would say, well, they, they, they look like a Christian, and, and sadly, in some cases, they've even mouthed some words that were gospel words, a sinner's prayer, but it wasn't truly from the heart. It was just, well, everybody else was doing it, or I wanted to make somebody happy. I wanted to get somebody off my back. I thought it was the right thing to do, but there was no true repentance There was no true saving faith. And they look like the other branches, the real living branches, but it eventually is revealed that they don't bear fruit. And that branch has to be taken away and burned. So fruitfulness is the inevitable result of abiding in Christ. A fruitless branch is taken away But a fruitful branch is pruned. Now, this is tough because, as believers, genuinely saved individuals, we understand what pruning is like. It's not always fun. Look back at verse number two. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. This is that word for pruning, that it may bring forth more fruits. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Pruning is essential to fruitfulness. Dead and lifeless material must be cut away. And sometimes even living material must be cut out in order to prevent lethargy. Now, my mom lives in Indianapolis and she still lives in the house that I grew up in. And there are... It's, it's actually been probably about four years or five years now since I've had to do this. But every single year, even after I got married, now we were in Terre Haute for two years. We moved to Indianapolis, back to Indianapolis in 2002. And I think for every year up until about four or five years ago, my mom would call me up in the spring. And she'd say, Brent, can you come over and trim the bushes on the side of my house? And I'm glad she couldn't see my face because I'm on the phone with her and I'm like, oh, not those bushes again. (laughs) I have cut them for it seems like every year of my life since I was about eight years old, nine years old. Those bushes just kept coming back. Same bushes. And eventually I think she got rid of a lot of them and I haven't had to go back and trim those. I don't know, maybe my boys have have had to trim those. (laughs) But it's that pruning process. It's essential to fruitfulness. You take out that dead and that remaining and then there is a a, a life. There is more sunshine. There's more water. There, there's the receiving of the nutrients so that there is a growth. And one commentator said it this way, God in our Christian life God wants both quantity and quality of fruit. And sometimes I think in our world, in America, where it's all about getting more and having more, we want to do and do and do and do and have and have and have. And sometimes that gets into the Christian life, and we have all of our quantities. I'm doing all these things. I'm involved in all these ministries. I am reading so many chapters, or whatever it might be, and then we lose sometimes the quality. God wants our spiritual life to be deep, He wants our remaining, our abiding in Him to be deep, to be real to not be superficial, to not be shallow. He wants us to receive all the nutrients of a relationship with him that we can possibly have so that we can bear fruits for him and more fruits and remaining fruits that we'll see in this passage. Pruning, pruning may be in the form of trials. James 1 talks about counting all joy, talks about patience, when patience has completed its, its, its perfect work, has done its perfect work, that, that you may be in mature, you may be entire, wanting nothing. In other words, that trial that we are to count joy, God is maturing us through that trial. He's producing a fruitfulness in our life that we won't have unless we go through that trial. That suffering fo- fo- forces us, that suffering forces us to get on our knees to apply God's truth, to take the principles, the commands, and the promises of God's word and and to apply them in our circumstance so that we can increase our faith that our fruitfulness may abound. Pruning may be in the form of chastisement. We've all experienced it. We know from Hebrews 12 that a father who truly loves his son will scourge him, will chastise him, and that, ch- that chastisement is to bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, I didn't like my dad's scourgings, but I needed them. I got them a lot. I probably have more that I owe my dad. <laughs> He's in heaven today. But there are some that in the mercy of God, and the mercy of my parents, I didn't get. I've told the story before of sitting in my bedroom after I got in trouble and I can hear to this day, I can hear my dad taking his belt off. I can see it. I can feel in a, <laughs> in, a, in a certain kind of way, in the memories of my mind, my dad scourging. But I remember sitting in my room and even just the fact, the thought of my dad coming down the hallway when I knew I was in trouble. And I think my mom and dad that night, they knew I had enough of a conscience that I was miserable that night and he never came. I don't know if that was worse than the spanking or not, but I remember, I mean, every little creak, every little sound of the house, I was like, oh no, here he comes. And I was just just waiting for it to come. I'm thankful for those scourgings, but spiritually, God the Father has had to scourge me. Christ has had to bring some chastisement in my life and still does. There's a chastisement a purging a pruning that comes when we repent of our sin when we confess our sin knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness yet there might still be some consequences there's forgiveness there's mercy but those consequences teach us one of the reasons we're having so much trouble in our society with crime is because of the lack of consequences. It's a real truth that's found in God's word that there has to be a punishment for the crime. I've realized that we need God's grace and we need God's mercy and For those of us who trust Christ as our Savior, we won't spend an eternity in hell. But Christ took that punishment. That's why there can be mercy and grace extended. Christ took that punishment for us. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteous of God in him. We don't like the consequences of our sin. But God uses those to teach us, to instruct us, to humble us. Many times we need those consequences so that we will repent. Sometimes we need that biblical counseling. Sometimes we need that hard preaching. Sometimes we need that God-fearing mom or dad who brings the rod because they love us and they don't want us to continue to go our own way. They don't want us to do our own thing because they know the truth that there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I'm thankful for the correction that I received. I'm thankful even for some of the correction I've received as an adult and even for the correction I've received as a father or as a husband or as a preacher, as a pastor. We need that. We have to have that pruning in our life. But the primary way that God cleanses us, that God prunes us, that God purges us, is through his word. Now, God brings people into our lives with biblical counsel. He brings circumstances into our life that we have to then measure by the word of God to make sure that our life is brought into accordance with the word of God so that our life is brought under submission of the word of God. But the primary way that God cleanses us is through his word verse number three now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you we're clean by the word first of all in that the word of God saves us so then faith cometh by hearing in hearing by the word of God the gospel is the power of God unto salvation but we also need the word not just to save us but to continue to sanctify us in that progressive sanctification. John 17, in verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Ephesians 5, in verse 26, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might wash us. And what does he go on to say there in Ephesians 5? In verse 26, and it's not just a... Application for us as husbands. Yes, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, but there's also that sanctifying effect as we love our wives, and there's the washing of the water by the word. We, as husbands, as we love our wives, as we disciple in our homes, we bring the word of God to our marriage, to our home to our responsibilities as a father and we apply the word of god we as men we want to do our own thing we get our big egos in the way we want to go out and we want to take our risks and we want to do our adventures and that's part of the way god made us but ultimately we have to submit ourselves to the word of god and the washing of the water by the word that is commanded for the husband has an application, of course, of the way that the word of God sanctifies us. Just as the husband, with the application of the word, sanctifies his home and sanctifies his wife and leads her in the ways of the Lord, in the ways of holiness, and leads his home, so the word of God sanctifies us, cleanses us, purifies us. And it's no wonder sometimes our homes are so out of sorts. Because do we bring the word of God into our home? Not just talking the basic Jesus talk, but truly helping our children and helping our spouse, especially as husbands with their wives, bringing our thoughts, bringing our minds to what does God's word say? How does God's word apply here? I had a conversation with one of my children on the way here this morning. An open door, a window of opportunity, a simple question. As a not just as a pastor, it has nothing to do with me being a pastor. It has to do with me being a father as a Christian, as a Christian father. I have a responsibility when my child asks me a question that I take him to the word of God. This is what God's word says. That's where we are going to get our sanctification. And we need sanctified. We have the dirty feet that Jesus talked about that need washed, cleansed regularly. We're saved, but we get a lot of dirty feet because of this world that we live in. And we need the truth of the word of God regularly to sanctify us one more passage in second corinthians chapter number 3 verses 17 and 18 a passage that sometimes i'm not sure we we always think of when it comes to the sanctification that the word of god brings to our lives but second corinthians 3 and verse 17 now the lord is that spirit second corinthians 3 and verse 17 now the lord is that spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty what is that liberty oh it's just to do whatever i want no one's going to tell me what to do. This renegade, this this cowboy kind of spirit where I just kind of, this spiritual cowboy, spiritual renegade, the spiritual maverick. Yeah, I've got Christian liberty now. I can just kind of do whatever I want to do, go wherever I want to go. Nobody's going to tell me I've got this liberty in Christ. Is that what he's saying in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17? He's saying that liberty is in the spirit, first of all. But then he says, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3 but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the spirit of the Lord the word of God is that mirror the Holy Spirit guides us into truth reveals Christ shows our sin Reveals our need for the righteousness of Christ. And the Holy Spirit then illuminates our mind. Illuminates our heart. So that we may apply the truths of God's word to our life. That we might be changed. That we might be sanctified. That we might be conformed into his image. And again the preaching. The the biblical counsel that we get. Even circumstances. All these different things that God brings into our life. They all come back to The word of God. What biblical principles apply here? What does God's word say? How does this circumstance measured with the mirror of God's word? How does this circumstance, how is God using it to teach me, to humble me, to help me, to sanctify me, to make us more like him? That I might honor God in this decision that I'm making. This is the sanctification process. This is the pruning. This is the purging. So we need to be exposed to and humbly receive the word of God on a regular basis through our personal Bible study. By sitting under the preaching and the teaching of the word of God, rightly taught, precept upon precept, line upon line, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to be exposed to the light of God's word that it might sanctify us. We need our personal study, our personal devotions, but we must humbly receive and submit ourselves to the authority of God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to finger into our hearts, to convict us, and to point us to Christ that we might live a holy life. Biblical counsel and circumstances that drive us to measure our lives by the word of God, that cause us to examine ourselves. One of the reasons we did, we observed communion last week, the Lord's table. One of the reasons we do that at least every other month is because that is a time where we are told, we are commanded in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves. Those things are hard. Those examinations are hard. That pruning is tough. I remember in my junior year of college, I may have told this story before, but we had to do evaluations of our roommates. And I was the prayer captain. They call them different, they have a different title now, but I was the discipleship group. They call them discipleship groups now, but that's what it was. It was a discipleship group, and there was a discipleship group for three rooms, and I was the discipleship group leader. But each of us who was a discipleship group leader had to do an evaluation of our roommates and our roommates of us and we had a piece of paper and we had all these different qualities and qualifications, evaluation points and we had to go through them. They did them on me and I had to turn around and meet with my roommates and do them with them and one of my roommates, we didn't get along the whole year. From day one, it was like oil and water. And God was working on me that whole year. I mean, it was just like we just constantly had, we constantly had issues. I'm thankful now. I look back, and I'm thankful. I mean, there were so many ways in which that year God was preparing me for relationships and people, and I learned so much. But my roommate and I, we, we butted heads all year long. He was a little bit of a rebel. I was the law keeper. And I am black and white. I have the gift of the prophet in that sense. And it was by the book. And I tried not to be a boge. Okay. And some of you are like, what does that mean? I'll explain that later. <laughs> I try not to be the I tried not to be the boge, but I tried to be that guy who kept kept the rules. And I wanted my roommate to keep the rules. And he had a job off campus. And he was always skirting the line. If it's if the curfew was eleven o'clock, he was coming in at 10.59 and 58 seconds or he was coming in 11.02 and arguing with the hall leader. On and on. He was the guy that was always trying to do something around the, the room to get away with something. And I was always that one. It was kind of his conscience so to speak. And we didn't get along. And I remember we had to sit down and we had to do those evaluations and there was some pruning going on. And it was the big old leaf choppers. okay? And he and I had to sit down and I was dreading this and we had one of the best conversations. I mean, I was totally unprepared for what God was gonna do in my life as well as in his. And we sat down and we, I don't know how long that meeting lasted and we went back and forth and we went through those points and I had to be honest with him and he had to be brutally honest with me and he had no problem being brutally honest with me. (laughs) And by the end of that conversation, There was so much grace of God that we walked away. We had hardly gotten along that whole year. We walked away as friends. Now, we weren't BFFs. He wasn't my bestie, all right? We weren't best friends. But we walked away from that meeting as friends. The rest of that semester, we had no issues. As a matter of fact, I couldn't believe it. He nominated me to be chaplain, for our society and I almost looked at him and, I, and when he told me that he had put my name in as the, as the nominee I almost looked at him and said Did you? Re- are you just joking with me we got along and then our senior year we would pass each other from time to time and we got along great only God could do that that evaluation was hard but it was necessary and sometimes God puts in our lives people And they are part of God's plan to prune us and we have to respond to them and they have to respond to us and we have to exhort one another. We have to provoke one another to love and to good works. And it's part of applying God's word in our relationships and we're going to get to that, Lord willing, next week as we are commanded in this passage to love one another. Think about the group that Jesus had put together of these now at this point, 11 disciples, fishermen, zealots, all these roughshod Galileans, mostly. And God put them together and he knew that they were going to have to remain a faithful unit in love with their savior and in love with each other in order to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. God has brought Berean Baptist church together in a unique way. And as a vine, not that we are the only vine and we are the only church doing it right. And that's not my point. But as believers called of God to Berean Baptist church, our vital relationship is with the true vine, Jesus Christ we must nurture that relationship and in doing so we're going to have opportunity to have some pruning and some purging that god brings into our life but also as we come together and exhort one another and provoke one another to love and to good works as iron sharpens iron as faithful are the wounds of a friend as we don't want to we don't look for we don't look for church discipline but that might be part of the pruning process in God's church sometimes that we have to do. But the, the main point as we close this morning is that we have to remain in Christ. We have to draw nigh to him. As we learned, as we heard just a few weeks ago at the men's meeting, as the preacher made the statement, if, any, if, if we are away from God, it's not God that has moved it's not that the vine has pulled itself away from the branches. It's that the branch isn't taking the life from the vine like it should. If we are away from God, it's not God that has moved. It is us. And we are to draw nigh to God, as James says. And that's the essence of John 15. As the branches, our life is from Christ. We are to remain vitally and faithfully in him in obedience And we'll get to the the next point in the in the passage. I'm sorry, a little later as we have time next week in this essence of love for one another. But we have to remain in Christ in order to bear fruit. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at what that fruit is and we'll look at some passages in Scripture that deal with what true fruit is. Lots of people talk about fruit and evidences of salvation But do we truly understand what spiritual fruit is, what fruit bearing really is? With the Lord's help, we'll come back to this next week and look more specifically at that fruit. But may we faithfully draw nigh to the Lord and understand that our life is from him. And we must always, regularly, faithfully depend upon him for our spiritual life and for our obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, for your word that so faithfully and clearly, like a sword, pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And Lord, may your surgical sword do his work in our lives. As the Holy Spirit convicts, as the Holy Spirit strengthens and comforts, as there's a need even, Lord, among our church family for the peace of God and the comfort of God this morning. We pray that, Lord, you will do your work in all these ways and the way that only you can, and that, Lord, you will help us to love you more and to serve you better and to remain in Christ faithfully abiding in you. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who is not truly a life-receiving branch, who is not truly attached to the vine, Lord, may today may be the day that they repent of their sins, put their faith in you, and truly become attached in such a way that there is life-giving and there is eternal life. Lord, I pray that you will do your work in our hearts as we sing this closing hymn. In Jesus' name we pray.